Let's turn to 2 Peter, chapter 3, new chapter, yay! It's hard to believe. We have finally moved on from chapter 2. But although we are moving on to chapter 3, the subject matter uh, continues somewhat in the same vein. We are going to read verses 1 through 4 together now. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understanding that you'd speak to our hearts and minds and just continue that process, that work in us of conforming us to the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and continue that process of training and equipping us to be end times saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Peter uses that term, beloved, and that's one of the things we see with all of the apostles, their humility, their love for the saints of God, never exhibiting any arrogance or uh, superiority, lording it over. Jesus taught them well not to lord it over those under your authority like the Gentiles do, like the pagans do. And so he again injects this term, beloved. I now write to you this second epistle. Of course, this is the third chapter, but he's reminding them again of his primary purpose in writing this, and that is in both of which I stir up your pure minds. So in both of Peter's epistles, the only books that he wrote, unless you count the Gospel of Mark, which many believe really is Peter's Gospel as dictated to Mark, I stir up your pure minds. That's his goal, to stir up the pure minds of his readers. And so Peter reminds us that one of the one aspect of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit is to purify our minds. Now, if you stir up an impure mind, all you get is filth and pollution, right? So Peter is operating under the assumption, the presumption, the expectation that as born again children of God, our minds have been purified. Titus 1.15 says, to the pure, all things are pure. And so sometimes, as believers, we might be accused of being naive or gullible, and that's not really an insult. To the pure, all things are pure. Hopefully, our reaction and response to situations, conversations, uh, that might perhaps to others appear questionable, we would always take the high road. In the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're told love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. As believers, we are expected by God to expect the best and believe the best about one another, particularly as fellow believers. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled, or as one translation says, corrupted. And so Peter's words are not for the impure, therefore the pure, those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, as it were, born again by the Spirit of God. He wants to stir up our pure minds. And so sometimes when we find ourselves becoming unsettled by the Word of God, that might be an indicator that our minds are not as pure as they ought to be. First Timothy 6.5, 
useless wranglings, he writes, of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, material gain, financial gain, personal gain, from such withdraw yourself. And so, in keeping with recent messages that we've had, this language for the modern world, 2018, might seem somewhat harsh. We talked about, last week I believe, becoming softened, you know, becoming, well, one of the worldly terms being thrown around today is snowflake. But it's gotten to the point where many who identify as believers who would consider themselves to be under the banner of Christianity really can't tolerate this kind of strong language. I mean, Paul pulls no punches. He talks about men of corrupt minds. Well, that's not nice. Well, it's not nice that people have corrupt minds, but some do. Destitute of the truth. And that's what happens if you reject the truth. Your mind does become corrupt. In fact, we're born in corruption and it requires a rebirth, a regeneration in order for us to escape that corruption and become those who are in possession of pure minds. But then he even goes a step further. He says, from such withdraw yourself. And many today would say, well, that's just too mean. That's too harsh. Someone was just sharing with me how they were basically preaching the gospel on, Renee, was it Facebook? And she caught holy heck for it. She was called a hater and all kinds of other things for telling people the truth. And that's what you have to expect. I mean, it's always been that way, but again, as we approach the final days of this present age, it's going to get more and more intense. And yet there are many who, when it comes to the hard sayings of the Scriptures, are just not willing to adhere to the truth of God's Word. And as a result, there is a corruption of our hearts and minds and there's a corruption of the church of God when believers are no longer willing to adhere to the truth of God's Word regardless of the cost. It might cost you some friendships. It might cost you some relationships. But are you willing? In fact, that's exactly what Jesus told us would happen. He told us that people would hate us if we love him and follow him. He told us that they would reject us. And yet we act shocked and surprised when that actually happens. And so, for those who are unwilling to, to obey God's word, what does Paul tell Timothy? If you encounter men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, withdraw yourself. Because if you don't, you also will become corrupted. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. As believers, we're to trade in that old, corrupt, polluted mind for the mind of Christ. To think like Jesus thinks. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what we all need. We need a renewal. We need a change in our way of thinking. That you may prove what is good, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think every believer, if we were to ask the question, do you want to know God's will in your life? In every situation, every circumstance, because God is involved in every aspect of our lives. Do you want to be in His will? Do you want to know His will? Do you want to do His will? I would suspect 99.9% .9 of believers would say, yes, I do. So here in Romans, Paul tells us, in order for us to be able to prove or to know or to understand what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, it requires a renewing of the mind and that doesn't happen via warm, fuzzy feelings, soft, fluffy, marshmallow messages, teachings. And it doesn't happen by avoiding the parts of the scriptures that make you uncomfortable. The renewing of your mind takes place 
is you allow God to wash your mind with the water of his word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Finally, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Paul again writing, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? How many times do believers actually attempt to do that? To instruct God. Okay, God, now we're going to have to have a come to Jesus meeting here. <laughs> um, let me tell you, God, how the cow eats the cabbage, okay? That sounds silly, but I think believers actually do that sometimes. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Obviously, no one. But, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ, not that we might instruct him, but that he might instruct us. Now, some people believe that you have to abandon all reason, logic, and rationality in order to be a Christian. Blind faith. You believers are just brainwashed. Well, I just mentioned how God does need to wash our brains. But when something's corrupted and polluted and dirty, it needs to be washed, right? It's actually just the opposite, folks. In our fallen, sinful state, our minds are warped and corrupted, and God is the only one who can actually restore us to our right minds. When you read about this, the story of the prodigal son, we're told at the end when he finally uh, returns to his father, it tells us that he came to his senses or returned to his right mind. When he departed, he was not in his right mind. How does Peter intend to stir up our pure minds? He says by way of reminder, and this has been a prevailing, prevailing theme, Peter says, in verse 1, uh, in both of his epistles, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. But even more specifically here in the second epistle, one twelve of Second Peter, he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So Peter's saying, even though you know the truth, you've heard the truth, I'm going to keep reminding you because we are prone to conveniently forget, are we not? And again, we're de bombarded daily by all the garbage in this world, all the lies of the enemy. And, you know, they say that it takes 10 positive words of affirmation to make up for one negative. So if somebody walks up to you and says, you know what? You ugly. It's going to be, take 10 people to tell you you're good looking before that you ugly is going to wear off. What are the chances that 10 people are going to walk up to you and say, you know, you're really good looking? I mean, could take a while. Well, the same thing, I think, my application is this. If we're bombarded every day at work, at school, in our, in our neighborhoods, everywhere we go, in the grocery store, in the movies, in the TV, if we choose to indulge in those things, if we are bombarded constantly every day by literally, what, hundreds of negative things, negative information, it's going to take a lot of God's Word to balance that out, wouldn't you say? So that's why Peter says, I'm just going to keep reminding you, and you've heard me say this before, but I think, you know, and I've had people make comments like this to me, but I think one of the most important tasks or responsibilities of a pastor teacher is to do what Peter's doing, remind you. And so often you may find yourself saying, well, I knew that when you hear something in a message that I'm delivering. But maybe it wasn't at the forefront of your heart and mind and it needs to be. Oh, I knew that. That's not a new revelation, but I guess I kind of forgot. A lot of people think, a lot of so-called Bible teachers and so-called believers think that it's a pastor's job to try to come up with new, exotic, exciting teachings that nobody's ever heard before. Chances are, if nobody's ever heard it before, it's not from God. We have 2,000 years of Orthodox Christian heritage 
We have the, the apostles' doctrine. It's not our job to make up new doctrines. It's our job to remind people of that faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says in his one-chapter book. And yet I remember many years ago, there had been a brief period of time when I had been out of Calvary Chapel and was involved with a different group, and God called me back to my roots. This is at the very beginning of this church. And so um, we had started as an independent fellowship. I didn't want to be independent. I didn't want to be a lone wolf and went to California with my cousin for a Calvary Chapel pastor's conference, met with Pastor Chuck. He lovingly welcomed me back with open arms. This was after about a five-year absence back in the uh, early 80s. And so I came back and I announced to the people who were part of the church at that time that we were going to become affiliated with Calvary Chapel once again. And as such, we would be following the Calvary Chapel format of studying through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And one of the people in leadership was very upset. Said, you know, they, they had been a part of a Calvary Chapel at one time themselves. And they said, all they do is study the Bible. I want to move on to the deeper things of God. And this is supposedly a mature believer. And they ultimately did leave the church. Folks, if we don't study the Bible, we'll never get to the deeper things of God. You, the deeper things of God are not found through feelings and emotions and experience. They're found as we seriously delve into the Word of God, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and minds and to teach us and to renew our minds, to purify our minds. 2 Peter 1.15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder and so I think you'll find, not just with me, but with many pastors, you might find yourself saying, well, didn't he just say that last week or last month or last year? And you know the story. I've told it before of the Apostle John when he was an old man. They tried to boil him in oil. He wouldn't boil. Only apostle that was not martyred. But they tried. But he's way up in his 90s, and he's there at the church in Ephesus. And he was feeble and frail, and every week the elders of the church would carry him to the front of the church so that he might address the congregation. And every week he said the same thing. Little children, love one another. You know, he is the apostle of love. He's the love apostle. The very first hippie, love and peace. But he would say, little children, love one another, and they'd get frustrated, and they'd say, John, you say the same thing every week. Don't you have anything else to tell us? He says, well, when you start doing that, I'll give you something else. <laughs> you may have noticed this, but the more you study the Bible, the more you read the same passage, the more you get out of it. Again, you're not coming up with some new exotic teaching or doctrine that nobody's ever heard before. Jesus calling. Hello? No. It's just that the Bible was written by the supernatural God of the universe. And it takes more than one reading. It takes a lifetime of reading. And as we walk with God and we allow the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, then, and we meditate on the Word of God, He will take us deeper and deeper. Can you imagine? I, I know we have this physical book called the Bible. It's God-breathed. It's the Word of God. But can you imagine the depths of a book written by the creator of the universe. It's going to take us a lifetime, and then we still won't know it all. We won't know it all until we see him face to face, and then we will know even as we are known. But doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it stand to reason that our walk with God, our faith, our relationship will only go as deep as the amount of time we spend digging into his word? If, if we don't spend any time, we're going to have a very shallow relationship with God. It just makes sense. 
I mean, it's like digging a hole. If you dig it a foot deep, it's a foot deep. If you dig it six feet deep, it's six feet deep. And again, living a Christian life based upon emotions and feelings is a very shallow relationship. Now, I think another reason, I'm learning this in my own life, another reason more people don't go deeper is because the deeper you go, the more you realize how rotten you really are. You can have a very shallow relationship with God, and it's just like a tiptoe through the tulips with Tiny Tim. Probably don't even remember the guy. Others say, you look like him now. <laughs> Tiny Tim never had any facial hair, I'll tell you that. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of like infatuation. It's kind of like, you know, you're in love. Oh, and everything's wonderful and rosy, and then you get married. <laughs> and you find out that love is not just a feeling. It's a commitment, right? It's a covenant, and it doesn't always feel warm and fuzzy, does it? But see, those who actually hang in there and stay married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, that's where the depth. So the thing is, though, if you go through life with this very shallow surface relationship with God, you don't ever really grow. You don't ever develop any spiritual maturity or depth. And you can certainly see that from the way many believers in many churches behave like infants. And so there's always the backbiting, the infighting, the church splits, the broken relationships. But we'll move on. Peter says, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And that's another mark of a true servant humble servant of God. It's not about Peter. He knows sooner or later he's going to die. Jesus gave him a preview that he would be led where he did not want to go. Peter was ultimately crucified upside down by his own request because he did not deem himself worthy to be crucified upright in the manner of his Lord. But Peter wanted to make sure that all believers for all times would have an ongoing reminder of the truths of God. It wasn't about him. And so Paul emphasizes this theme. We won't go into all those verses, but it's also a recurring theme in the writings of Paul, this idea of reminding. And of course, there's another built-in assumption there with the reminding, not only that you are part of a regular fellowship where you are being taught in the Word on a regular basis, but also that you're spending your own time in the Word. Because I can't remind you of something you never knew, right? Verse 2. That you may be mindful. There it is again. Twice in two verses. Reminder and mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. I think we can safely say it's of the utmost importance to Peter who is speaking on behalf of God that we do not forget two things here in, in verse 2. One, the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, the God-breathed scriptures of the Old Testament, and you've probably heard the big controversy. It's been discussed on WorldNet Daily and different places. WorldNet Daily is a Christian news site. Joseph Farah, the founder, editor-in-chief, is an Arab-American Christian who totally supports Israel. If you've not been to the WorldNet Daily website, it's a great place to go to get all kinds of news and information, particularly from a Christian perspective. But it's top-notch. It's a top-notch news site. But they've been discussing on WorldNet Daily how Andy Stanley, the, the, the son of Charles Stanley, has been promoting the idea that Christians should not study the Old Testament. I guess we'd have to say he's not a chip off the old block. He's also come out with a very wishy-washy position on 
controversial issues like homosexuality, gay marriage, and so forth. But so we see yet another error sweeping into the church. He has a very large church. It's a megachurch. He is one of the rising stars, so to speak, within the young church, the millennial church. And he's saying that the new covenant wiped out the old and that we don't have any reason. In fact, it's a distraction to study the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is the very foundation for our faith. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Christ and over a thousand concerning his return. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. All the apostles quoted from the Old Testament. But So this is another example of what we've been studying in recent weeks about the false teachers. I mean, I hate to put Andy Stanley in that category, but that is false. If you're teaching Christians, they should not study the Old Testament. That's false. So Peter says he wants us to be mindful of the words of, of the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, the God-breathed scriptures of the New Testament. And as we've already covered this morning, while so many pastors and congregations today are focused on warm, fuzzy feelings and experiential Christianity, and by the way, that's one of the hallmarks of what you've heard referred to as the emergent church, is a return to a more experientially based Christianity. Candles, incense, things that have been an ongoing tradition in the high church, what we call the high church, the Catholic church, Orthodox church, with the icons, the saints, the candles, all these physical expressions, which some groups would call idolatry. When the Puritans came on the scene, they banned any symbols from the church. Might have been a little bit extreme, but the point is this. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. We fix our eyes on that which is not seen. And the early church was certainly not a church built on experiential faith, emotional faith. You try living a life for Christ that is emotional and experiential when you are daily in danger of losing your very life for your faith. You won't stand on experience and feelings. You will stand on the truth of God's word and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. We, this is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. I guarantee you those persecuted believers in many parts of the world are not sitting in some nice building somewhere with flashing lights and fog having a little Christian rock show. They're hiding somewhere meeting in private, praying in private, studying their Bibles in private, and wondering which is the next one to be martyred. The founders of our faith were most concerned with stirring up our pure minds with the eternal truth of God's Word. 2 Peter 2.3 Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. So within the context of Peter's discussion in this epistle regarding false teachers and then his desire to stir up our pure minds with the words of the prophets and the apostles, his next point, he says, is of first importance. Knowing this first. Watch out for this, Peter says. This will be, pardon the expression, a dead giveaway. Scoffers will come in the last days. Now, have there always been scoffers? Yes. But in the last days, according to Peter, the murmuring of scoffers will become a deafening roar. Do the roar. Shrek. You remember that? Do the roar. Don't you watch kids' movies? Okay. A little kid wants Shrek to do his roar. In the last days, the murmuring of scoffers will become a deafening roar. And it won't just be from outside the church, by the way. Are we there yet? 
I think so. In a moment, Peter will reveal to us the number one topic of their scoffing. But first he says, walking according to their own lust, just like the false prophets that Peter discussed in chapter 2. It's a matter of the flesh versus the spirit. Those who live lives of selfish indulgence will most certainly lead the way in mocking God. Do you know that? Of course. Because God is what stands between them and the fulfillment of the desires of their flesh. They will most certainly lead the way in mocking God, His Word, and His followers. Even though some of them will claim to be His followers. Paul lays it out really well for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But know this, kind of like what Peter's saying, knowing this first, Paul says, but know this, in the last days. Do you think the apostles believed that there would be a last days? A literal time in human history. Jesus said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. The Bible is full of verses about the last days. Is God just teasing us? Is it just metaphorical? Is it mythical? No, the Bible clearly states there will be last days. Now, the interesting thing about it, this could be another dead giveaway, that most every previous generation prior to, say, maybe the last half of the 20th century, which many of us have been alive through that time period, almost every generation from the very first generation, the first century church, has always believed that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. Is that wrong? Is that stupid? No. We're told in the scriptures to be looking for him, to be expecting him. In fact, we'll see at the end of this message that Jesus says not to do that is sinful. It's wrong. Every generation of believers should be looking for the return of Christ and should be believing that, it, that it's going to happen in their lifetime. Now, the argument from the, uh, the post-tribulational rapture folks is that if we believe Jesus is coming before the tribulation, that that will make us lazy and we'll just kind of hang back and wait for God to take us out of here when, in fact, it's just the opposite. The belief that Christ could come for you at any moment should motivate you to be on your best Christian behavior. And I was thinking back this morning about the Jesus Movement days, the early 70s when I was in Southern California. Youth movement. Thousands, literally millions of young people, first in Southern California, then across the nation, then around the world, coming to Christ. I would have to say the number one motivating factor for us in going out, witnessing, doing concerts in the park, going to the Redondo Beach Pier and witnessing, handing out tracts, picking up hitchhikers, whatever it was, the number one motivating factor was we believed Jesus was coming at any moment. If you don't believe that, then, well, what's the big hurry? What's the big rush? Right? The last days. Folks, think about how amazing this is. 2,000 years have transpired since the completion of the New Testament. Generation upon generation upon generation of people have lived on this planet. Generation upon generation upon generation of believers have lived and died. And my point that I began to make a moment ago, here we are, and it would seem that perhaps for the first time in human history, a large segment of the church is not at all focused on the return of Christ. Have you noticed that? It's not a popular subject today. What happened? That's a dead giveaway to me that we really are in the last days. When people stop looking for Jesus, that's when he's coming. But we best not stop looking for him. We best keep our eyes to the skies. Because there really is such a thing as the last days. And one day, sooner or later, there will be a group of people alive on this planet who will witness the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And I believe it involves many people in this room today. 
in the last days, perilous times will come. Have there always been perilous times? Yeah, but Paul, Peter, all of them say the last days will be more perilous. Jesus said it too than any other time in human history. Why? For men will be lovers of themselves. Yeah, I think we've hit an all-time high with that one, wouldn't you say? Lovers of money, another all-time high. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Just go to Walmart. Just go to Smith's. Unthankful. Oh, yeah. Unholy. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, yes, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. Again, it's not just the mockers were not come from just outside the church. In fact, persecution from outside makes the church stronger. You know what tears the church down? persecution from within. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. So if you were the devil, what would you do? Would you concentrate on getting people in the world to mock you? Or would you concentrate on getting people from within your own ranks to do it? What do you think? Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And the power, folks has to do with the salvation of your souls, the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Christ that we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes. So what's being downplayed in many corners of the church today? The cross, the blood, sin, confession, repentance. Words that have been stricken from the dictionaries of many churches. Having a form of godliness... Oh, we're good people. We do good works. We feed the poor. We do this and that and the other thing. But we deny the power of the blood of Christ. We deny the power of the gospel. And here it is again, those words that people don't want to hear, don't want to adhere to. And from such people turn away. I talked about this last week. Pastor Chuck used to discourage us, his congregation, from spending a lot of time trying to witness to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, people like that, because they spend all their time being trained on how to refute and rebut every argument that you can possibly lay out. The devil would like nothing better than to have you spinning your wheels for days and weeks and months on end trying to win somebody over who is totally closed and shut down to the truth from such people turn away. We're not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Only the Spirit of God can reach them. The Bible says no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. In that situation, the best thing you can do is pray for them. Pray that God reaches them. Pray that God opens their hearts and minds. Pray that God gives them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. But look for those who are ripe and ready. The enemy would like to divert your attention. You might have somebody right in front of you that's about ready to fall off the tree, so to speak. All they're waiting for is somebody to ask them, would you like to pray and ask Christ into your heart? Yeah, man, I've been waiting for somebody to say that. But the devil will try to distract you over here till you're working, bleeding, sweating, drops of blood till you're blue in the face trying to convince someone who at this point at least is unconvincible. From such people turn away and pray that God will touch their hearts. Verse 4, our final verse, 2 Peter chapter 3. Anyway, here's what these mockers, this is the warning. Knowing this first, in the last days there will be mockers Saying, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Boy, does this sound like Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? 
that you can't eat from this tree? Oh yeah, God said that because he, he knows when you do, you'll be just as smart as he is. You see, God's lying to you, Eve. God's a liar. Where's the promise of his coming? Didn't Jesus tell you he was coming again? Where is he? And again, when Peter wrote this, this is the first century. And again, from the human perspective, 30, 40 years could seem like a long time. Those early believers expected Jesus to come back at any moment, as they should have. But now here we are 2,000 years later. So you can imagine how the mockers would be going from murmuring to roaring. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So it would seem that what Peter is telling us, the number one characteristic of mockers in the last days, will be the mockery of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now for believers, again the rapture is the precursor to the second coming, which is at the end of the tribulation, when we return with him to rule and reign for a thousand years. But for believers, this will be his second coming. For the Jews, it'll be his first. Or so they think. Avi Lipkin tells that funny joke. They're there at the uh, airport in Tel Aviv. The head of security comes to one of his, uh, you know, uh, underlings, one of the security guys who greeted me once on the tarmac because I had long hair and a beard and a Russian hat and a balalaika. What's this guy doing here? Who is he? So they were waiting for me at the bottom of the ramp. Somebody must have called ahead. We've got a live one. <laughs> so the supervisor of security at the uh, Tel Aviv airport tells this guy, we just got word the Messiah is up on the Mount of Olives. And I need you to go up there and ask him a question. So the guy goes. He obeys his supervisor. He gets up there to the top of the Mount of Olives. He sees the Messiah. And he says, excuse me, sir. Is this your first time in Israel? <laughs> Avi tells it probably better than I do, but you get the idea. <clears throat> So for us, it'll be the second coming for the Jews because they missed him the first time. It'll be his first for them. They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will weep. And they will recognize that he really is the Messiah. But for the non-believer, it will be his or her worst nightmare. So what do they say? You Christians are deluded. Don't you know Jesus isn't coming? The aliens are coming. What's the matter with you people? Are you mental? Who's really mental here? A lot of them believe the aliens are coming. Well, there are demonic entities coming, that's for sure. But they think we're crazy because we believe Jesus is coming. Even if you believe Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago, even if you believe that, and even if you believe he rose from the dead, if he was coming back, he would have done it by now. Have you ever heard anybody say that? You know, get over it. It's been 2,000 years. He ain't coming. So put on that old grassroots record. Sha-la-la-la-la-la, live for today. Because Jesus ain't coming. Where's the promise of his coming? You guys are deluded. Get over it. Move on. Get a life. We did, thank you very much. Eternal life. Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Get over it, people. Every generation has used the same line. Better get ready. Jesus is coming. Hogwash. 
And again, as I've already mentioned, sadly, many under the umbrella of the church have embraced the attitude that it's wrong to focus on the return of Christ. Instead, they would tell you, we just need to focus on the here and now. Self-help. How to become a better husband, better wife. Well, all the answers are in the Word of God. We don't need another seminar. We don't need another conference. We don't need another 12-step program. We need Jesus. And we need Him to come back. Matthew 24, 45, I alluded to this earlier. Words of Jesus. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? So you could say that this very particularly and specifically applies to the shepherds of the flock, the teachers. Peter's been addressing that issue of false teachers. Who's the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler of his household to give them food in due season, spiritual food? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant, so we have a faithful and wise servant who is feeding God's household, and then we have an evil servant who says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Wow. Does that make you say well? That makes me say well. My master's Jesus isn't coming soon. Get over it. We should not become obsessed with the return of Christ. It might not happen for thousands of years. I'll tell you what, buddy, thousands of years from now, you're going to be well done. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him. You see, if you're constantly looking for him, watching for him, hoping for him, praying for him, you won't be caught off guard, will you? Only the one who's not looking. He'll come on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour that he's not aware of. Ooh, this gets pretty heavy here. We'll cut him into two. Two what? Two pieces. And appoint him as fortune with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can anybody infer or draw from this passage that God does not like it when people don't look for Jesus to come back? What do you think? Seems pretty obvious to me. In fact, exactly what I said at the beginning of the message, this confirms that God equates and correlates faithful service with an, an expectation a strong expectation that Christ could come at any moment. And by that I mean rapture of the church. Quite the contrary to those who mock the return of Christ. God's word strongly encourages us to anxiously look for him. Luke 21, 28. Now when these things begin to happen, Jesus says, in this passage, Luke 21, is a parallel passage with Matthew 24. It's an explanation of the last days. And Jesus says, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Look up. Matthew 24, 42. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Again, these verses speak of watchfulness, readiness, not a distraction or an ignoring of the return of Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, touching, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, seriously, 
righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if God feels so strongly about wanting his people to be living lives in anxious expectation of the return of his son, then what is the enemy going to try to do to the church? Get us focused on anything and everything but. And he's done a pretty good job. Finally, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, some more strong words might offend some of you snowflakes out there. If anyone does not love the Lord, well, I like him. It's not what it says, is it? Okay, how many today like Jesus? If anyone does not love the Lord, we love him because he first loved us. He is to be accursed. That's not nice. Well, it's not nice to not love the Lord because he died on the cross for your sins. He's to be accursed. Maranatha. That means come quickly, Lord Jesus. The words of Paul. Love the Lord or be accursed. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we pray this morning that you would forgive us if we have any lack of enthusiasm or excitement or motivation re regarding the return of Christ. It should be at the forefront of our hearts and minds all the time. And Lord, we know when we do make it, when we place it, at the forefront of our hearts and minds. It will affect the way we live, the way we think, the way we act. That sense of expectancy that you could come at any moment. I'm sure, Lord, there's a lot of things that we've been doing that we wouldn't do if we had this mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I'm sure his return is at the forefront of his heart and mind. He's just waiting, Father, for your command. He's ready willing and able to come for us. Lord, work in us that we would be ready, willing, and able to meet him in the air. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today as we read this very strong verse about loving you, Lord. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. I pray that no one would fall into that category here today. If there's anyone that doesn't know you, that right now, this very moment, they would invite Christ into their heart to be their Lord and Savior. And Father, as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion this morning, may we be reminded not only of what Christ has done for us, dying on the cross for our sins, shedding his blood that we might be forgiven, but also that he's coming again to receive us unto himself. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.